Well, I don't think he's actually a bullfrog. He wasn't really that good of a friend. He lived 2,600 years ago. And I didn't help him drink his wine. And he didn't have that fine of wine, because he was a prisoner a lot of the time. And he didn't really sing joy to the world. It was mostly woe to the world. You're going to be destroyed, Jerusalem. You know, I'm, I'm beginning to think this song by Three Dog Night is not actually about the Jeremiah of the Old Testament at all. Uh, but I do think one thing is true. I never understood a single word he said until I prepared for this week's lesson. Number 41, I have made thee this day an iron pillar. And hopefully after listening to this week's episode, you'll understand too. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine. As I mentioned, we'll be discussing in this uh, episode number 41, the first of two Jeremiah lessons. I have made thee this day an iron pillar. As always, if you want to email the show, contact me at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. Open, if you're, if you're following along in your scriptures, open to Jeremiah chapter 1. Now, the first thing that we see in chapter 1 is a storytelling no-no, and it's almost right away. Uh, verse 3, I'll read it to you. It came also in the, J- in the days of Joachim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. So in verse 3 of the book of Jeremiah, we already know how it ends. This is a huge spoiler. Uh, and, well, Jeremiah, it is true, spends most of his life telling all of Jerusalem and Judah, anyone who would be willing to listen, that they were going to be destroyed and carried away captive by Babylon, as had been foretold by several prophets, including Isaiah. So Jeremiah lived about a hundred years after Isaiah, maybe 90 years after Isaiah, and he served as a prophet under five, four or five different kings of Judah, including the prophet Josiah. Now to get a historical context, you remember that at the end of, when in our lesson on the book of Kings, at the end of the book of Kings, Josiah uncovered an old copy of the scriptures inside the temple, or, or his temple workers, he gave them an endowment, no pun intended, of money so that they could give the temple a facelift and perform much needed repairs. And as they were doing that, they uncovered the scriptures. And so Josiah in reading the scriptures, recognized all of the ways in which the nation of Israel or the nation of Judah w- were sinning. And so he called his people to repentance. And Jeremiah was the prophet during the reign of Josiah. Then Josiah had a number of heirs, and we don't need to go through all of them, but there were his, a couple of them were his sons. One of them, one of Josiah's sons, first of all, Josiah was killed in battle with Egypt and one of his sons were was removed from office within three months, and then they put another of Josiah's sons on the throne, and he was actually the king when Babylon conquered Egypt, and instead of now Jerusalem being subject to, to Egypt nearby, they were subject to Babylon. And that king rebelled against Babylon, and by this time the king is a grandson of Josiah. And then when that king rebelled against the Babylonians, they put one of Josiah's other sons on the throne. And this is the king we know as Zedekiah. So after all of these, all of this interchange of kings, we finally end up with Zedekiah. Now, you may be familiar with that name because it's a name we find in the Book of Mormon. That is the king under which Lehi and his family lived in Jerusalem. So this is This is a very interesting lesson for us as Latter-day Saints because it is the one part of the Bible and the Book of Mormon that overlap in the same place and the same time. And it's very profitable for us to study this lesson because if we want to understand, not only is this the, the spiritual context that we learn about for Lehi, but this is the Jerusalem 
the memory of Jerusalem that Nephi and Lehi carry with them to the promised land. And so the context that they take with them, the scriptures that they take with them, the culture, the language that they take with them, they all come from Jeremiah's Jerusalem. And that informs their memories of the old world for the rest of the Book of Mormon. That no one else in all the Book of Mormon has seen Jerusalem other than the resurrected Christ who appears to the Nephites. So the only thing they have are the writings of Lehi and Nephi to, re- to remember Jerusalem, and those all come from the time of Jeremiah. So studying the book of Jeremiah is about the most helpful book to understand a lot of the context of the Book of Mormon. Some interesting things are happening right in the first chapter. As I said, we know right away how the book of Jeremiah is going to end. It's going to end with Babylon coming in and carrying away Judah captive. But also in in verse 10 of chapter 1, God says to Jeremiah, See, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and pull down and to destroy and throw down, to build and to plant. So it looks like what God is saying to Jeremiah is, what you break on earth will be broken in heaven. You have, you have my authority. You can command armies. You can command other, other nations. I have set thee this day over the nation. So I've given you authority not only over spiritual things, but over earthly things as well. And before this, God gives Jeremiah his calling. And Jeremiah says, you know, I'm, I feel... I don't feel equal to this calling. And God says, I'll be with your mouth. I know that you're young. You don't feel like you can speak with power, but I'm going to put my words in your mouth. And God touches, literally in his vision, he touches Jeremiah's mouth. And then from that day on, there are a couple of interesting passages throughout the book of Jeremiah where he says, when I tried to keep my mouth shut, because as we'll learn, Saying the words of the Lord never brought Jeremiah happiness. That's why I made the joke that Jeremiah didn't ever say joy to the world. He was constantly telling Judah how bad they were sinning and what the consequences were going to be. It was never good news. And so he was never happy because no one was ever happy with him. And so he tried, there were times when he tried to keep his mouth shut and not share the word that God had given him. And then he he likened the word of the Lord to a burning fire inside of him. As soon as he closed his mouth, he was miserable. He was even more miserable. So it's interesting. There are a couple of prophets that we've studied, Isaiah and Hosea. You remember that Isaiah was given the names of his children. The Lord directed him to name his children symbolic names according to the lessons that he wanted the prophet to teach. And the same thing with Hosea. He was to marry a certain kind of woman, and then he was to give his children names about the judgments that would come upon the nation of Israel. Well, Jeremiah was directed not to marry or have children. So again, this was also an object lesson because Jeremiah's whole ministry was about how desolation was going to come upon this land. And whenever you hear the phrase, the the abomination of desolation, we're going to learn a little bit more about what that means. Abomination is something that is horrible in God's sight, and desolation is an emptiness. It's where there are no people to till the land, and so the land is going to waste. You might remember the phrase, formless and void. Well, another way to translate one of those words is actually waste. Instead of void, it's waste. In other words, there's nobody to live there. And so the abomination of waste or the the sin of waste, this whole land goes to waste in the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is trying to get, trying to do everything he can, humanly possible and divinely possible to avoid it. And he fails. And he knows he's going to fail. This is the hard part for him. He knows he's going to fail. There's an obvious parallel here with the prophet Mormon in, in the book of Mormon. So if you remember... Mormon has been leading the armies of the Nephites against the Lamanites his whole life from the time he was a young man. And the Nephites become so wicked that they're just as wicked as the Lamanites. In fact, they're even more wicked. They, they are pillaging people, killing innocent people, even raping their prisoners. And he describes their terrible wickedness. And then he says, I can't lead them with faith. I cannot, when I'm preaching to them, it's with the 
no faith at all that they're going to change. And when they repent, it's not the repentance of those who are truly sad because of sin, but because God won't allow them to take pleasure in sin anymore. And so he knows that it's a lost cause, and he's lonely and miserable the rest of his days. And this is exactly the kind of life that Jeremiah lives. Judah was, uh, at least for a certain amount of time, especially around the time of the dedication of the temple in the days of David and Solomon, but also in the days of one of the kings that he knew in the days of Josiah and in the days of Hezekiah within recent memory, within living memory when he was a young man, Judah was a righteous country. And so they were a shining light for the nations about them, round about them. And now they're even more wicked than the nations that surround them. So if you have ever finished the Book of Mormon and you remember reading the, the actual book of Mormon where the Nephites are so wicked, this is exactly the situation that Jeremiah finds himself in. So when I was a child, I remember reading that Lehi went out and he named the wickedness of the people of Jerusalem. And then they were angry with him and they tried to take his life. But I didn't really understand. I, didn't, I couldn't really visualize the places that Lehi would have found himself in or what kind of preaching he would have done. And one of the easiest ways to visualize what Lehi was going through is to look at pictures of or recreations, artist depictions of what the temple looked like, what the Temple of Solomon looked like, and then picture Jeremiah there, because that would have been exactly what Lehi went through as well. So we spent a little bit of time in uh, chapter one here, but we're gonna we're gonna jump around fairly uh, a fair bit, and that's because the first chapter we're gonna discuss will explain why. Uh, chapter thirty six. What happens is Jeremiah. This describes this chapter describes the revelation that comes to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, I want you to compile a book of all your prophecies. Now Jeremiah was an oral prophet, so he'd been preaching, and writing down prophecies wasn't actually that helpful. It wasn't that beneficial to a prophet's contemporaries during this time. The only thing, it was obviously beneficial to those who would come later, otherwise they couldn't hear it. And so the prophets had to strike a balance. How much time do you spend preaching, and then do you worry about writing this down, and how do you remember it? Well, the chapter 36 gives the story of Jeremiah bringing on, employing the services of Baruch the scribe. And we can assume that Baruch is with him for the rest of his ministry, or at least as long as he can be. And there are a number of times when Baruch figures into the story. But all of the prophets who had their words written down probably had someone similar to Baruch if they weren't writing it themselves. And what God says to Jeremiah is, you've been a prophet for a long time, for decades. And Jeremiah, its total prophecies span more than 40 years. We don't know exactly how long it had been, but after several years and decades of Jeremiah's ministry, he says, write everything down, recreate your whole ministry, and I want you to have Baruch help you. And Baruch transcribed the words of Jeremiah as he said them, but he also collected stories about Jeremiah when Jeremiah wasn't present. And because of the way this book was written and recreated, there's not a chronological order to what happened. Now, we don't know whether that's Baruch's choice or Baruch's fault. We don't know whether uh, Baruch put them together in different ways in different scrolls, but there doesn't seem to be a chronological order to the book of Jeremiah, and there doesn't seem to be a thematic order, and there doesn't seem to be an order by length, any of the other means in which books in the Bible were ordered. So we don't know exactly, there's no clear agreement, I should say, among scholars on how the book of Jeremiah was put together, but it was probably whatever was most convenient for Baruch so that he could get things onto the scroll as quickly as possible before they were forgotten or lost. So if you do study the scriptures that are involved in this lesson, that might be helpful to you to know, because sometimes the even though the stories are early on, for example, in, we're, we're going back now to chapter one, we we read about Jeremiah being called as a prophet, but the the account of this calling seems to be informed by knowledge of later events, and that's the way the whole book goes, because we knew the end from the beginning. Before the book was begun, 
we already knew how mostly how it was going to turn out, or at least most of the story, most of Jeremiah's life had and ministry had already passed. All right, the, here's an interesting. You remember when we talked about Isaiah, we talked about untranslatable tidbits, little puns that are slipped into the text. And we have one here in the first chapter of Jeremiah, verse 12. Uh, well, but in verse 11, God says, Jeremiah, what seest thou? And I said, I see the rod of an almond tree. Then said the Lord unto me, thou hast well seen, for I will hasten my word to perform it. And it's this word for that's kind of confusing. So why should... When Jeremiah says, I see an olive tree, why should God say that's true? For for this reason, I'm, I'm going to hasten my word. Well, in the, in the Hebrew, the word for an almond tree is a, is a shaked, and the word for watching over, hastening the word is similar to watching over, and the word for watching over something is shoked. So shaked and shoked. So you see an olive tree, and you've seen well, because I'm going to... You've seen a shaked, and I'm going to shoked my word to make sure it comes to pass. So an olive tree was the symbol that God was watching over all of his words. Now, an additional uh, symbolism here is that some people think is what the Lord meant as well, is that the olive tree was the first tree to bloom in the spring. And so God's saying, before any of the other signs come to pass, this one's going to happen. Before any of the things that you can rely on or think about, that's how quickly what I'm going to tell you now is is going to come to pass. In other words, Isaiah's been talking about this. Hosea, Amos, from a previous generation, they've been talking about the exile. But now the symbol you get is the olive tree, or I'm sorry, the, the almond tree. This, this is going to come to pass very quickly, and I'm going to watch over my word. And, and, the, and God used a, two words that sound alike to express this idea to Jeremiah. So our lesson contains a selection of, of chapters. It's a long book. Jeremiah is actually the longest book in the Old Testament next to Psalms. And so obviously it's going to be difficult to cover all of it in only two lessons. So there's a selection of chapters to which in a typical fashion I've added my own selection. So the chapters that we're studying are 1 and 2, 15, 20, 26, 36 through 38. And I'm going to add a couple more as we go. So in chapter 2, we begin to hear a little bit about the message that God is telling Jeremiah to go spread. And uh, in verse 2, God says, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness, in a land that was not sown. So God is expressing the idea, I remember when it was just you and me together, after after I brought you out of Egypt, you were following me, and you depended on me, and you had faith in me. And the God uses throughout this book, as he did with Hosea, as he did with Isaiah and other prophets, he uses the imagery of adultery to express the idea that this is how this is what it feels like when you worship another god and put him before me. It feels like a husband watching his wife go away in adultery. I feel that awful. And the punishment is the same. The punishment is separation, spiritual death, in other words, and, and even physical death. And in fact, Jeremiah takes it one step further and compares Judah to a camel or a donkey in heat. And when a female animal like this, including you know a, a number of different kinds of animals, when the female is in heat, then the first male that comes along is going to be the one that gets lucky. And so the the message of Jeremiah in this imagery is that Judah, you, your lovers, they don't have to work very hard. This is this is exactly the kind of nation you are. This is the kind of worshiper you are. You'll take the first God that comes along and worship him and do whatever he wants, and you, you won't stay faithful to anything for very long. Compare this to what Isaiah said in the first chapter, he's talking about uh, a donkey knows where to go to get food, but you don't even know what's good for you, Israel. So this also made Isaiah extremely unpopular, comparing Israel, saying you're dumber than a dumb animal. And this this message by Jeremiah right here in chapter 2 is 10 times more inflammatory than that. You are more wanton than an animal in heat. This is very insulting language, and it's meant to get their attention and provoke them to anger. 
And that's why God says, this is where the title of our lesson comes. I have made thee this day an iron pillar. What God is saying is, I'm going to protect you. This is here in chapter 2. I'm going to protect you so that they can't prevail over you. You're going to make a lot of enemies. And your whole life, you're going to have nothing but enemies among the children of Israel. And they're going to imprison you, but they will not prevail over you. And so... Jeremiah requires a lot of courage and a lot of strengthening by God. And still, several times throughout the book, you'll read where not only does he lament that he's alive, but he laments the person who even gave news to his father that a child was going to be born. Why couldn't that a person have slain him as he came out of his mother? Or why couldn't he have stayed in his mother's womb? Jeremiah constantly is miserable about the fact that he's even alive because his life is so awful. And it doesn't always seem like the kind of language you ex- you would expect to come from a prophet, but the, it is interspersed with Jeremiah having visions of the redemption of Judah, not only redemption from their exile in Babylon, but the new Jerusalem in the last days. So we'll talk about some of Jeremiah's latter-day prophecies next week. This week we're talking about Jeremiah's tales of impending doom and prophecies of the destruction of Jerusalem and the lamentations that he had. In fact, the book of Lamentations is often ascribed to Jeremiah, but modern scholars believe that more of them believe that the book of Lamentations was written by exiled Jews that were living in Babylon, because the perspective that seems to be expressed in the book of Lamentations is one of an exiled Jew. However, the, a book that is recently coming to be ascribed to Jeremiah seems likely to be written by him, and that's the book of Kings. First and Second Kings has some of the same passages that used to describe the destruction of Jerusalem that the book of Jeremiah has. And so it seems at least possible that Jeremiah was the author of that book, and, he, and so therefore he abridged, similar to Mormon again, he abridged the history of his people and put that together in a book and preserved it in scripture for those who came after him to read. And he might have done that through his, through Baruch, his scribe, or he might have done it himself. One quick lesson to take from chapter 2 before we're finished there. In verse 35, God tells Judah, Because you call yourself innocent, I will plead with thee. Now, if we read this in the King James translation, we read plead. But this is a, this is a legal term. It actually can mean also accuse. So God is telling Judah, because you're not admitting your faults, I'm going to accuse you. I'm going to prosecute you. This is a, this is a court of law. This is a, this is a court of judgment. And so we can contrast this. If you remember, we talked about Isaiah's prophetic calling when he's called into the temple. And because he said, oh, I'm unholy, God, I'm now, I'm sure I'm going to be destroyed because here I am in God's presence and I'm not clean. And God says, no, I will cleanse thee you'll be purified. My purity is going to extend to you rather than your impurity extending to me. And a big part of that was because Isaiah recognized his own uncleanness. And here's the opposite. This is contrasted with the nation of Judah now. They're not recognizing their own uncleanness. They're saying, we have no sin. And God is saying, because of that, I'm going to accuse you and find you guilty. Now, this follows right into both chapter 26 and chapter 7. Chapter 7 is not part of our lesson, but chapter 7 and chapter 26 are very parallel chapters where it talks about Isaiah's called to go to the temple. And it was common in the days of, of Jeremiah to stand at the gates of the temple and everyone who came in to preach to them. And so Jeremiah was one of these gate prophets, these temple gate prophets who would say, you know, call call their attention to their sins as they went into the temple. So it's interesting to think Jeremiah was, he was made, making enemies among what you might think of as the faithful Jews. These are the temple attending Jews. He's not talking to all the people who are staying home and don't care anymore about the worship of Yahweh. He's He's there talking to people who think they're doing the right thing. And he's saying, what do you think? What good do you think it's going to do to come here to the temple? Do you think it's really helping you to go out and mistreat the widows and the poor and the stranger and the eunuch, all these underclasses that we talked about last week? Do you really think it's it's so helpful to worship other gods right on the other side of this wall, right right down in the valley, that we right within the sight of where we can see? 
do you really think that you can do all those things, come here and worship, and God doesn't know about it and doesn't care, and it's going to accept your sacrifices? You might as well take all these burnt offerings and just eat them yourself. That's one of the admonitions that Jeremiah gives them. It doesn't do you one bit of good. And so that's chapter 7 and chapter 26, very similar chapters. And in chapter 7, verses 6 and 7, we learn that it's not yet too late for Judah to repent. Now, we've been hearing since the day of Isaiah that they're going to be carried that Judah is going to be carried away captive in, in, into Babylon. And here's Jeremiah saying you can still repent. So, how do we reconcile this? It's an interesting question because God on the one hand, he knows that Judah's not going to repent, but he keeps saying by the prophets if you will repent, then you can escape these calamities that have been foretold. Well, of course, they don't, and the prophecies are proven true. So it's an interesting academic question, but obviously the foreknowledge of God was right on the money. And another interesting verse in chapter 7 is one where God said, or Jeremiah says, this house, in this, is this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have see it, seen it, saith the Lord. This is the verse that is quoted by Jesus when he he talks about that he overturns the tables of the money changers and he says, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. So he's he's actually quoting from Jeremiah. And how much more, so as you, as you recognize the context that Jeremiah was telling these people, he's saying, you are bringing upon yourself the, de- the destruction of your entire nation. So how much more provocative are, is the statement of Jesus now with that context, the people who heard this would have understood exactly what he was saying. Jeremiah, in in history, with the with the benefit of hindsight, the Jews of Jesus's time would have known Jeremiah was right. He was saying, "You've turned my father's house into, or my own house." The words of Yahweh through Jeremiah, "You've turned my house into a den of thieves, and therefore Judah will be destroyed, Jerusalem will be destroyed." And Jesus is saying the same thing as if he were Jeremiah. He's saying the words of Jeremiah now apply again. In other words, the whole nation is in danger. One of the reasons people hated Jeremiah, now now put yourself in the position of the Israelites at the time. What would you think, or actually put yourself in the position of modern day. What would you think of someone who's saying, we're as a nation, we're about to go to war. And someone who's saying, we're going to lose this war. They're going to overcome us. They're going to run into our cities. The, a lot of the Jews at that time said to Jeremiah, hey, listen, these men need to need to be bolstered. They need to have confidence that they can go into battle and win. They don't need you dragging them down and making them feel like they have no, no chance to win. It's going to mean that we're for sure going to lose. And Jeremiah's point was, listen, this isn't me saying we're probably going to lose. This is God saying we're definitely going to lose because we haven't repented. And because it was the word of the Lord, he was totally justified in saying that, but the other people didn't believe it was. And that's the same thing that happened to Jesus, and that's the same thing that would happen today. That's the same thing that happened to Joseph Smith. He made very unpopular pronouncements about the sins around him, and he was persecuted most of his life. And there were times when he was in prison, very similar to Jeremiah, where he called out to God and said, God, how long are you going to hide from me? What? When are you going to take vengeance upon your enemies? When are you going to give me the strength you promised me, the protection you promised me? Because at the very beginning, as we learned of Jeremiah's ministry, he was promised that God would make him a bronze wall, an iron pillar. He'd be protected his whole life. And there were times when it didn't feel like he was being protected very well, but he always came out of it in one piece. He came out of it protected and and whole, and God didn't bring upon him the same calamities that he brought upon Judah, even when it was destroyed. Here's another attitude in chapter 7 that is you find even among modern Latter-day Saints, which is the Jews seem to believe that because they had the temple and they knew that it was God's true temple and he was the true God, they, they didn't believe that it could be destroyed, that God would allow any enemy to prevail over it. And as evidence, what they had was the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. They destroyed mo- uh, many of the walled cities of Judah But when they got to Jerusalem and besieged it, that's when Isaiah came out with the word of the Lord and he said, they're not going to fire a single arrow at the city. And they woke up the next morning and 185,000 of them were dead. Well, the Jews took that 
the the Jews of this unrighteous time took that to mean God is always looking out for us. This is, you know, we're the we're the heroes of this story, and we are the good guys. We have the, you know, if you if you're watching a movie and you think, oh yeah, good is going to win, this this main character, he's got the best help of all because the writers are on his side, and so for sure the ending's going to come out the way that the writers want, right? And this is how the Jews see themselves. They think, well, we've got God on our side, and so we can never lose. If you think about how harmful a belief that is, this is exactly what they believed. It didn't matter what they did, because the temple was there, because it was the temple of the true God, then they could never be destroyed. And so they saw Jeremiah as a big liar, as someone who was just a fly in the ointment, just a real big irritation to them, somebody to be gotten rid of. And so there were people, Jeremiah made powerful enemies, not just among the people going to the temple, but among kings because he would denounce the, the royal decrees and the uh, political acts of political leaders called the princes of Jerusalem. It wasn't just the king, but it was the high priests and the princes. He would say all kinds of things about the decisions they were making to mistreat the poor. And they were saying, Jeremiah, Will you cut it out? You're making me look bad. Why do you keep saying these things? You're you're not being any help at all. And they wanted to do things their own way. Appar- occasionally, they would call for Jeremiah and say, all right, tell us what Jehovah says. Every time, Jeremiah would say, I don't know why you're asking me, because as soon as I tell you, you're not going to do it. You're either going to tell it to people who want to kill me, or you're going to ignore it, and it won't be any help to you. And they'd say, no, no, I'm not going to do that. And then he'd tell them, all right, God says you got to repent. Or God says, one of the instances was when King Zedekiah, the final king of Judah, said to Jeremiah, tell me what God's word is. You know, I know now that we're in real danger. All right, tell me what you want me to do. Jeremiah says, all right. He gave him the same warning, you know, you're not going to listen to me. But then he says, all right, if you turn yourself over to Babylon first, and if you give up, then you'll be protected. And not only that, but the city won't be destroyed either. And Zedekiah says, well, wait a minute. If I turn myself over to Babylon, there are already a bunch of Jews. If you remember the story of 2 Kings chapters 22 to 25, Babylon came in and conquered Judah a couple of different times. And they would put a new king on the throne, hoping this king would finally pay them their tribute. And then he'd go for a few years, and then he'd rebel, and and they'd have to come in and conquer it again. And so finally, and so there were already a number of Jews, mostly the noble Jews, that were living as a as an exiled population in Babylon. And Zedekiah said, you know, if I turn myself over to Babylon, then they'll turn me over to these Babylonian Jews and they'll mistreat me. And Jeremiah said, okay, reasonable fear. I'm promising you right now that God will take care of you and that won't happen. And Zedekiah didn't believe it. And so exactly what Jeremiah said. He said, you're not going to listen to me. Zedekiah didn't listen to him. Now, in spite of sometimes we we see complaining from Jeremiah, we also have to admire his courage. This would be his defining characteristic, was the courage to always say the word of God. This is the, the calling of a prophet, to represent God to his people, to say, this is the word of God, thus saith the Lord. You've got to hear this. And there's a perfect example in chapter 20. So Pashur is one of the high priests, and he's tired of what uh, Jeremiah is saying, and so he puts him in stocks, which is where you know, uh, if we the modern equivalent, we don't know if it looked exactly like this, but where your hands and head are exposed and people can throw rotten fruit at you or mistreat you or slap you. And this happens to Jeremiah. And when he's released, he says to Pashur, all right, your name is no longer Pashur. I'm giving you a new name, which is Magor Misabib, which, is, which means terror everywhere. So you'll see this name in the uh, King James Version as Magor Misabib. And that's the translation, terror everywhere. And again, this is in chapter 20. And he and Pashur exchange words. And then finally, Uh, Jeremiah says, For I heard the defaming of many, fear on every side. Report, say they, and we will report it. This is Jeremiah telling what his life is like. People are all, no matter who his friends are, all my familiars watch for my halting, saying, Peradventure he will be enticed, and we shall prevail against him, and take our revenge on him. So he described terror everywhere in his own life. 
And he was saying, all of the things you visited on me, Pashur, you're going to feel yourself. So this is Jeremiah describing what his life is like. He has no real friends because as soon as he makes a friend or as soon as someone he thinks someone's listening to him, then God shows him these people are actually laying in wait for him so that they can betray him. And he made this same curse onto somebody who had mistreated him. Because you've, because you've turned the temple into a den of robbers, then your name is terror everywhere. You're going you're gonna to find out exactly what it's like to be me. This is very similar to the language that Abinadi used. And again, we later on, we also see another uh, parallel between Abinadi and Jeremiah that he says, however you treat me, this is what's going to happen to you. So part of the fun of the book of Jeremiah is that it's a little different from the books we've been studying the last few weeks, where it's mostly their pronouncements against the kingdoms of Judah and Israel. Jeremiah has a fair amount of story to it as well. So Jeremiah lived a fascinating life, even though it was miserable. It's uh, it makes quite a riveting story. And in one of the in one case, he he understands that Babylon. Now historically, a historical side note: Babylon and Egypt are at war during this time. So during part of the life of Jeremiah, it's Egypt that that's ruling over Judah. And in part of the life of Jeremiah, the second half, it's Babylon. And so. Babylon and Egypt are warring together. And at one point, Jeremiah sees that Babylon's going to win this battle. So he tries to get out. There are a lot of people in Israel or Judah who are, who are allies of the Egyptians. And Jeremiah sees this not going well for Judah. And so he tries to get out, and he's captured and thrown into prison. And he's actually thrown into a prison that has only mud for the floor, and there's no ladder. You have to be lowered in by ropes. So he's left in there. There's no food and water, and basically he's going to starve. He sees the siege coming where there's going to be no food in the city, and he thinks, don't lower me into prison because I'll die there because what's the last priority in a starving city? It's feeding the prisoners, and eventually Zedekiah needs Jeremiah's advice, and so he arranges to have one of his servants spring Jeremiah out of prison because it's not a very popular thing to release him. There's so many people who hate them. So even the king doesn't feel like he can release Jeremiah just by saying it. So he has to find somebody who's willing to break him out of prison. And so that happens. And then uh, the king meets with Jeremiah secretly and asks him, this is, this is when the king asks him, what should I do? And he says, turn yourself over to the Babylonians, you idiot. And the king doesn't do it. So a fascinating life that he lived, and he was uh, very political. You know, we so often we think, oh, the prophet should stay out of politics. But again, we have another, after Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah was probably the most political of the prophets. He was extremely political and involved in everybody's business. He was telling them exactly what they were doing wrong, and they thought, oh, this is none of your business. This is not a religious issue. But it was a moral issue, and Jeremiah was calling attention to those things constantly. And we mentioned a couple of things about chapter 26 that, uh, just like chapter 7, which I added to the chapters to study for this lesson, in chapter 26, which is included, um, this is one of Jeremiah's gate temple gate sermons. And everyone is upset with Jeremiah's message. They want to kill him. So the, the chapter starts out with him calling them to repentance, and they want to kill him. And rather than saying, all right, fine, you know, you should listen to me, but if, if you're not going to listen... That's fine, but I this is true. Jeremiah doubles down on it, and in verse 11 of chapter 26, not only are all the people who've been listening, they're upset, but they've gone and got the priests and the prophets and the princes of the people, and they all come and say, this man is worthy to die. So then in, in uh, verses 12 and 13, Jeremiah says to the princes and all the people, the Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and against this city all the words that you have heard. Therefore, now amend your ways and your doings and obey the voice of the Lord, your God, and the Lord will repent him of the evil that he has pronounced against you. As for me, behold, I am in your hand. Do with me as seemeth good and meet to you. But know ye for certain that if ye put me to death, ye ye shall surely bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon this city. So this is very reminiscent language of Abinadi. And he doesn't have any problem saying, all right, fine, I'm going to die. But here's my, you can't stop me from finishing my message. And then whatever happens to me doesn't matter. But if you do mistreat me, then know that you're going to be mistreated in your turn. 
because God doesn't forgive people for killing prophets. And if you continue reading that chapter, it's interesting because there are a couple of elders come forward almost like Alma the, Alma the Elder defending Abidendi. A couple of these priests come forward and say, well, maybe we shouldn't kill Jeremiah. You know, look what happened in olden days. This prophet said the same thing that Jeremiah is saying, and so maybe his words are true. And so they spare Jeremiah on this occasion. Now, if you read beyond chapter 38, which is where the lesson ends, you'll see that Jeremiah is still in the city when the Babylonians come to lay siege to it. And not much is said about how terrible the siege was right here in the book of Jeremiah, but in other places we read how awful it was. Now, it was a siege of four months or longer, and the reason it was broken was because eventually all the warriors abandoned it when there was no food left. But before that happened, what we find out is that, again, as, as happened when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, mothers were eating their own children. This is, what, this is what I was referring to when we talk about the abomination of desolation. It's when desolation and waste gets so terrible that sins are everywhere. It's a terrible thing for land to be laid waste, this completely. So... Abomination of desolation is a phrase that we'll study again when we talk about the book of Daniel. It comes, uh, he, that is a phrase used to describe the destruction preceding the latter days. And so if you want to know what it means, all you have to do is study the writings of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, now we know, or we believe, that he might have been the one to write the book of Kings. And so he was also describing the sieges of the Assyrians in the northern kingdom because he understood it. He knew exactly what it was like to live through a siege. So the Babylonians were not the Assyrians. They weren't quite as bad. They didn't kill everyone. They didn't take everyone out of the country and then bring strangers in to inhabit the land. They did, when they conquered Jerusalem, leave some of the poor people behind, but they took everybody else. They took them away captive into Babylon. It was awful. They killed them. They burned the temple. They took all of the wealth out of the temple and just utterly destroyed it. They destroyed the wall of Jerusalem. They took all of the metal that was in the temple, even if it was bronze. They carried all of that to Babylon. And so it was not a peaceful conquering where you might get this impression that they left mostly the nation of Israel intact or the nation of Judah intact, the tribe of Judah. It wasn't intact. They conquered them violently and killed so many of them. But there was enough of them that they kept their identity. And the Babylonians did one kind thing, which was they allowed them to keep their scriptures and keep their families together. And they didn't, they didn't bring a strange people in to inhabit their land. Instead, they left the poor of Judah behind so that they could continue to reap, plant and reap crops and pay tribute. So the Babylonians were a little more rational and reasonable in the way that they conquered a country. They were out for power and not out for destruction for the sheer pleasure of, of death and causing pain. That was the Assyrians. And Jeremiah witnesses all this, but he is one of the Jews. You may think they're lucky or not lucky. However the case may be, Jeremiah is left behind. The Babylonians recognize Jeremiah has been trying to tell the Jews to make peace with Babylon. And so they see, they see him as somebody who should not be punished, but instead should be rewarded. And so they, they give Jeremiah some land wherever he wants to go. And there are some rebels, again, people who don't want to be loyal to their masters in Babylon. And they kill the man that the Babylonians have left as king and they decide to make common cause with Egypt again. And they come to Jeremiah to ask him what they should do. And Jeremiah says, well, I could tell you, but you're not going to listen to me. And they say, no, come on, really, seriously, tell us. And he says, if you stay here in the land of Judah, and if you will obey the commandments of God, then right now, today, God will watch over you. The, the lesson has totally, the message of Jeremiah has totally changed. You won't be destroyed anymore. Judah has already been destroyed. If you stay here, he will watch over you and it will be well with you. But if you go into Egypt, every one of you will be killed and God will send the, the 
Babylonians after you to destroy you, and some of you will be destroyed by disease. Some of you will be destroyed by the sword. Some of you will be taken into captivity, but none of you will escape. And they say, well, thanks for the prophetic pronouncement. We don't like that. And so not only are we going to go to Egypt, but we're going to force you to come with us. So they kidnap Jeremiah and force him to go into Egypt. And the all we find out about is that Jeremiah makes these pronouncements. We can presume that he was correct. And they're all killed. We don't know what happens to Jeremiah, whether he's brought back. We can presume that he was. The legend has it that he settled in the land of Benjamin where he came from. And then we have, because we have the story, right? We have Jeremiah's account of the story. So somebody had to write that. And finally, what we have is an account of what happens in Babylon. And this is the same way the book of Kings ends. And it's a message of, it's a little question mark in the end of all this destruction. It's a little bit of hope. And it is this, that the final king that was carried away, Joachim, the the surviving descendant of Josiah, who's been in prison in Babylon for years, all of a sudden there, there arises a new king in Babylon who sees the Jews as not quite so bad. And so he takes this imprisoned king out of prison and eats dinner with them and says, you can eat at the king's table every night until the day you die. And the idea is that there's going to be, uh, there shall not fault as the Davidic prof, as the Davidic covenant foretells, there shall not fault David, a king on the throne of Israel. And so Jeremiah has earlier prophesied that Judah would be captive in Babylon for 70 years and then they would be allowed to return. But he doesn't actually get to see exactly how that would come about. So all Jeremiah is able to find out is that at some point, the king of what was formerly Judah is allowed to make friends with the Babylonian emperor. And this is a way of saying God's promises are alive. They're active. Everything I've said up until now has come true. And everything that I have said about the future will come true. And I think a fitting way to conclude our lesson on the book of Jeremiah is to go to chapter 15. Now, we've, you're discovering that we're jumping around. But in, in chapter 15, verse 2, there's a poem there that talks about what happens when, um, when we are removed from the sight of the Lord. Verse 1, God says, uh, uh, Jeremiah says, Then said the Lord unto me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my mind could not be toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. So God's saying, even if you had the prophets of old who were the most righteous prophets, the most faithful, who were the most successful in getting people to obey, even if you had them on your side right now, it wouldn't be enough. It's too late for you. And in verse 2, it shall come to pass if they say unto thee, whither shall we go forth? So in the last verse he says, get out of my sight and go forth. Whither shall we go forth? Then shall they'll tell them, thus saith the Lord, such is for death to death. Such as are for the sword to the sword, such as are for the famine to the famine, and such as are for the captivity to the captivity. This is a parallelistic poem, and when it says death, it it actually means disease. So basically what Jeremiah is saying, those who are appointed to die by disease, that's where they will go. Those who are appointed to die by war, that's where they will go. Those who are appointed to die by famine, that's where they will go. Those who are appointed to be captives, that's where they will go. So it is a terrible poem saying, I'm accounting for everyone. There's no room for anyone else. Once you leave my sight, there's only terrible things that can happen to you. So the warnings of God have gotten progressively worse over the generations until in the days of Jeremiah, he's basically saying, there is no good thing that can come if you, w- if you are not willing to listen to the voice of God. Now we contrast this with, with what Jeremiah says, the reason I brought this up is it's years later when he finally talks to Zedekiah and, and the king says, all right, what can I do? Please tell me, what, what does the Lord say? And Jeremiah says, you're not going to listen, but if you were to turn yourself over to Babylon right now and just listen to me this one last time, it's actually still not too late. And so a lot of times we believe those voices that tell us it's too late for you. The pronouncements of God 
are just. And we all sort of feel that deep down. We feel like God is a God of justice. And so I've committed a sin or I've not not fulfilled everything that the gospel would have me do. And so God has already said what the consequences of that are. And so I'll never be worthy. In other words, it's for me, it's going to be disease or it's going to be war or it's going to be starvation or captivity. But one way or another, I cannot get back into the sight of God. And then years later, after all this has been pronounced as totally inevitable, here's Jeremiah telling Zedekiah, look, if you'll just listen to me, if you will just admit that you are a sinner, then it's still not too late for you. You can be saved. And and as Jeremiah said, God will be with you. He'll protect you. It shall be well with thee because Jehovah is going to be on your side. And that's really the message of Jeremiah is if you are willing to repent, it really, though it looks like it's too late, that's because you're seeing with earthly eyes and you don't understand the mercies of God. God has to get more and more serious about sin as the time gets closer and closer to when the consequences of sin are going to be upon you. But until that time, it's never too late. It really is. You still are in time right up until that day. And Zedekiah had plenty of chances. And so each of us has a Babylon. And if we do, it's not too late. It's not too late for us to admit we're sinners and admit we need God's help. We need him to make it go well with us because we're incapable of doing it for ourselves. We've trusted to our own wisdom long enough. Well, next week we'll talk about some of the more hopeful pronouncements of Jeremiah, but hopefully you've gotten a feel for what an amazing and inspired and courageous prophet he was. But mostly, I hope that we can take to heart the message that it really is never too late for the salvation of God to have effect over us and make it go well with us. That's the whole point of the plan of salvation. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.